Hey, welcome to Seacoast. We're glad that you're uh, along with us today. I want to give a special welcome to the campuses and uh, to those of you who are on the internet, maybe a podcast, and also those of you who are uh, joining us from the Long Point campus uh, this weekend. I am speaking in Belfast, Northern Ireland. I'm there with uh, Martin and Sarah Chalk and uh, their church at CFC. So you pray with us. As we, uh, it's kind of exciting to see what God's doing and partnering uh, with this great church to uh, see what God wants to do in Europe. Now, for you guys, uh, I'm excited for you. Uh, you're going to be hearing from one of my friends, John Siebling. Uh, John is the pastor of The Life Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, it's one of the great churches in America. In fact, it's one of the fastest growing churches, uh, doing a great thing in Memphis. Very unique. Uh, and John is. One of my favorite speakers, John, is uh, on the board with me uh, on the leadership team of the Ark, and uh, helping us plant churches throughout America and now around the world. And you're going to love him. You're going to love the way he communicates, and you're going to love his heart. So what I want you to do is to give a huge Seacoast welcome this weekend to John Siebling as he comes to teach us. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Great to be here at Seacoast Church this weekend, one of the great churches in the United States, and love your pastor, your pastors and your team, Greg and Debbie Surratt and Josh and all of the guys. It's such an honor for me to be here. This is an amazing church, and Greg uh, has been really, we call him Bishop because he has been an amazing mentor to so many of us. We, uh, Our church is one look. Uh, 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 one church, many locations as well. And we learned so much about multi-site from, from you guys. And so such an incredible honor for me to be here at Seacoast. Greetings from Memphis, Tennessee. Come on, how many of you have ever been to Memphis before? Let me see all your hands. All right. How many of you have been on the Graceland tour? Let me see. Okay. Listen, one thing you have to agree to do is send all of your packages FedEx for me, okay? FedEx is headquartered in Memphis, and I always tell our guys when I go out preaching, I'm going to encourage everybody to send their packages FedEx. And when you send a package FedEx, you're contributing to the kingdom of God in Jesus' name. And so make sure you do that. I want to give a big shout out and a big welcome to all of the campuses. Come on, can we put our hands together and thank God for all the campuses that are joining us? The church I pastor in Memphis is a diverse congregation and we, we pretty much reflect the demographic of our city. And as a result, there's a lot of response. I like to, I like to get a lot of response when I preach. Can you help me out a little bit? Give me a little shout back every now and then while I'm preaching. It'll make me feel like I'm right at home. As a matter of fact, I, I noticed the Hammond B3 organ on the stage. We've got one as well. And every now and then the guy will jump on there and bump a little bit while I'm preaching. So I'm not going to ask anybody to do that today, but here's what I'm going to get everybody to do with me. When I'm really kind of really going at it and, and, and I'm making a good point, I might do this right here, just like, and you go, yeah. <laughs> let's practice. All right, you ready before I get into the message? Yeah. Hey, that's pretty good. Some people are like, hee. No, you got to put a little something. Ah, you got to put a little something into it. Okay, listen, turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans. I want to talk this weekend about passion about being a passionate person, a passionate Christian. 
One of the first verses that I memorized when I became a Christian was Romans chapter 12, verse 11, which says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Come on. I think we ought to read it all together from the screens. Come on. Let's read it all together. Romans 12, verse 11. Never be That's great. Keep your spiritual fervor serving. Now, if you notice, there's no asterisk right next to the verse with some fine print at the bottom of the page that would, you know, exclude you. You know, never be lacking in zeal, you know, except Mondays, right? Or except when the Gamecocks lose or except when or whatever, you know. There's no exclusions. In other words, never means never means never. So never be lacking in zeal. The word zeal means enthusiasm. It means enthusiasm. It means eager desire. Never be lacking in eager desire. Never be lacking in enthusiasm. But the word fervor is the key word. Never be lacking in enthusiasm and eager desire, but keep your spiritual fervor. The word fervor means heat. It means hot. It means intense heat. And it means passion. So so never be lacking in eager desire and enthusiasm, but keep your spiritual heat. Stay hot for God. Be a passionate Christian. And I think, you know, a passionless Christian is an oxymoron. How many of you would agree with me on, on that one? We need to be full of passion. And you know, the word passion was originally used to describe what Jesus experienced the week leading up to the cross and on the cross itself. That's why it's called the passion of the Christ. It's called Passion Week. Because what Jesus experienced was so intense, they didn't have a word to describe it, so they created this word passion. Of course, now it's come to be used for so many different things, but originally it was used to describe Christ. And Jesus wasn't just a passionate person on the cross or, you know, the week leading up to the cross, but he lived a passionate life. And when we talk about Jesus being on the inside of us, living on the inside, that means you and me, as Christians, as believers, we need to be passionate as well. When you look through the Gospels, what I love about you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each tell different stories and they have sort of different twists on the life of Christ. And each of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe sort of a passion moment in the life of Christ. Matthew talks about the time Jesus was looking out at the crowds and, and they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says that he was moved with compassion. And of course, compassion, the root word is the word passion. Compassion means literally to burn on the inside when when you see someone in need or when you see someone hurting. And so Jesus was a man of compassion. Mark tells the story about Jesus being in church and they brought a man with a withered hand. The gospel of Mark, powerful story about a man with a withered hand. And of course, it was against the law, the religious law of that time to do anything on the Sabbath, to heal or to help or do anything And so the Pharisees and the religious leaders were were, were sitting there waiting, you know, to accuse him for helping someone on the Sabbath and Jesus couldn't resist a need. And so he, he, he ministered to the man, he healed this man. But before he did, the Bible says that he looked around at those religious leaders and was deeply distressed. He was deeply distressed. There was sort of this holy frustration on the inside because of the the law and the, the, the religiousness of those leaders. And then, and then Luke tells the story of, of Jesus sending out the disciples and, 
and uh, he sends them out and sort of commissions them. And then they come back to report all of the things that happened. And, and they said, you know, to Jesus, even the demons are subject to your name. And, and the Bible says that Jesus rejoiced and he looked up to heaven and he praised God. There was such joy. He was happy. It was a moment where he was, he was like really fired up. And then John tells a different story of, of a, a moment where Jesus became angry. You know the story. He goes into the temple and he sees the money changers. And the Bible says he, he fashions a whip. Man, this must have been an intense moment. He fashions this whip and he goes into the temple and he starts turning the tables over and <laughs> goats are running and chickens and coins are falling, you know, falling off the table and he's cracking that whip. How many of you know that would have been an intense moment if you were the disciples? watching this side of christ that you'd never seen before and he was angry it was a righteous anger and so we see we see this passion kind of threaded through the life of christ and and you know what i wonder sometimes how some christians can excuse the lack of passion in their life if jesus is on the inside then we need to be the most passionate people people that are full of life and full of passion for the things of god and you know, it doesn't have anything to do with personality. Some people would think, well, that's just not my personality. I'm talking about an inner passion, a, a fire that's on the inside. Come on, this would be a good time to give me a little. <laughs> now, don't get weak on me. Some of you are like, eh. <laughs> there you go. All right, good. Full of passion. And you know, in the Bible, there are four ways that we ought to express our passion or four ways that we live passionate lives and and so i just want to give these to you and then take the rest of our time and go deeper into one of them for a few minutes this weekend four ways that we express our passion first of all is love i mean the bible is real clear that we are to love with passion love god love people and love life to be full of life to love life to live that passionate life where we're in love with God and love with people. Number two would be we are to worship with passion. Passionate worship. I love to talk about this because, you know, some people are just unsure of, you know, expressing themselves in worship. You know, when they come into a church where people are clapping or raising their hands, man, I tell you, some people really get uncomfortable. And I can relate because the first time I went into a church where there was passionate worship, I mean, I, it sort of freaked me out, to be honest. And I had for, 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 for several months what I call white-knuckle worship. Anybody know what that is? It's when you're holding on to the chair in front of you so tight that your knuckles turn white. I mean, I literally was afraid that if I let go, I might float up into the rafters of the church. I liked what I saw, and I loved the passion. I was just uncomfortable. I wasn't used to it. And so slowly, you know, I became more comfortable with it, you know, to the point where, you know, I, I can remember the day when I decided I was going to go for it. You know what I mean? I was going to let go. <laughs> so I let go of the chair, and after a few minutes, I'm realizing, okay, I'm not floating away. Then I didn't know what to do with my hands. I was kind of like, you know. You know, I just, and so then I thought, well, I'm going to really give this a shot. And so I closed my eyes and, and you know, mustered up as much courage, and then I kind of went like, kind of did half-mast. You know what I'm talking about? And, and I opened my eyes and looked around and I realized something very powerful and significant. No one was watching me. And it dawned on me, it's all about him. It's not about me. And so I decided to go full blown, you know, and then, and then I mean, I got comfortable, you know, then every now and then I just kind of look around. I'm like, yeah, see, I got, I'm good. Y'all good. I'm good. 
You got a problem? I don't got, I'm good. And so, you know, we think, you know, clapping and, and, and shouting and lifting our hands, even dancing, all those things are in the Bible. And they're not assigned to specific streams within Christianity, you know, like clapping and, 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 and shouting. And then, boy, if you lift your hands, though, I, I find that lifting hands really kind of, it like puts you, over, you know, you're, you're a full-blown like Pentecostal if you lift your hands. But the Bible doesn't say that, right? The Bible just says, oh, clap your hands, all you people, shout unto God with a voice of triumph, lift your hand, you know, in the sanctuary. All those are encouragements in the Word of God. And they really all center around really expressing our gratitude for what Jesus has done for us, for what He's done. So let's practice. Come on, at all the campuses, everybody, everybody lift your hands. Come on, let me, let me, let me have everybody just lift your hands. Okay, look around. Everybody's doing it, right? <laughs> look around, you know, no, nobody's, uh, nobody's alone in this. Okay, let's clap our hands, everybody. Let's clap. Oh, yeah. Come on, let's give God a good shout. Give a good, good, good God a good shout. Or do it. See, you're free now, right? We are to worship God with passion. In fact, the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Say, say heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what some believers do is they, they, they pull two of them out and they say, well, I'm just going to worship God with, with, with my heart and with my mind. And that sort of excuses me from any sort of demonstrative, you know, expression of emotionalism. And so they worship God like this. It's like an intellectual assent. But, you know, the Bible says worship him with your, your soul, which is your emotions. That means put a little... Put a little something into it, okay? You know, mix it up a little bit. Put a little spice in there. Worship God with your, with your, your, your strength, which means your physical body. In other words, you're going to get into it. And when the presence of God comes and we worship, we're going to put some passion to it. Right, church? We're going to be passionate. We're going to be passionate worshipers because we're going to worship God. I call it total being worship. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the third one is giving. So we love with passion, we worship with passion, and then we're to be passionate givers. For God so loved the world that he, he gave. God was a giver. If we're going to be like God, if we're going to be godly, then we're going to be generous in our nature, generous toward people, generous with our finances, generous with our time. That's why the Bible says God loves a, a cheerful giver, a passionate giver. And then here's, here's the fourth one. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this one. So we're to we're to love with passion and worship with passion. We're to give with passion. But then the fourth one is serving with passion. To be passionate servers. Serving people. Serving God. And I think this might be one of the most important, significant tools in our hand to really be the witness that God wants us to be within our, within our world. We're going to look at this great story in the book of Genesis. You can turn back in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Great story about a young woman named Rebecca who served with passion. She served with passion. And we're going to learn some things about her life. Let me give you the context. Genesis chapter 24 starts off talking about Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just 
Praise the Lord, right? But this was before Father Abraham had many sons. He only had one son, and it was Isaac. And Father Abraham was concerned because Isaac wasn't married, and he was becoming, Abraham himself was becoming well advanced in years, the Bible says, and he was concerned about the inheritance and his lineage. And so he called his chief servant and said, go find a wife for my son. That's how they did it in those days. So we pick up in verse 10, check it out. It says, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and left, taking with him all kinds of good things. Somebody say all kinds of good things. Took all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram Naharam and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed. Now notice this sort of fleece prayer that he prays. Oh Lord, God of my master Abraham, give me success today. How many of you know it's okay to pray for success? It's a good thing to pray. He said, give me success today. Show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring. And the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to a girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink. And she says, drink and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now watch this. He's praying this fleece prayer, but it's not a crazy prayer. It's not, you know, it's not, you know, out of this world. He's praying literally for someone who would serve with passion. He's praying for someone that would put a little extra there and not only offer to give him some water, but offer to water his camels as well. Now listen to this. Before he had finished praying, how many of you know those are the best kind of prayers? That before you even say in Jesus' name, God has already started to move on your behalf. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had ever lain with her. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said. I I like to sometimes read it, you know, in character, just to... (laughs) I'm just kidding. I just want to make sure everybody's awake. Everybody's with me. Drink, my Lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too. Mm. Until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water and drew enough for all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took out a gold nose ring. What? Did y'all see that coming? A gold nose. And listen. And two gold bracelets. Somebody say a little bling bling. (laughs) Then he asked, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And the rest is history. Rebecca married Isaac. You know the story. They had two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob wrestled with God, became Israel because a nation was inside of him. 
He had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Through one of those tribes, Judah, the Messiah, was born. And so Rebekah literally became the great, 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 great times 23 grandmother of Jesus, the Messiah. All because she served with passion. And I love stories like this because Abraham had a need and Rebekah had a desire and God brought them together to fulfill his plan and his purposes. But it wasn't as if Rebekah was just a puppet on a string in sort of the divinely sovereign plan of God. No, no, no. She positioned herself for that miracle, for that breakthrough, for that destiny moment because she was committed to serve with passion. And so there are three things that we see in Rebecca's life, three things that can flow into our life today if you and I will not just serve, but serve with passion. Let me give those three things to you. Are you ready? Here we go. Number one, opportunity. Everybody say opportunity. Opportunity flows out of a second mile attitude. Opportunity flows out of a second mile attitude. You know, it was Jesus who came up with that phrase, go the second mile, go the extra mile. Because during Jesus' day in the Roman occupation, a Roman soldier could walk up to you and basically demand that you carry his things or his pack. And by law, you were required to carry it one mile. But when Jesus came, Jesus didn't preach minimums. Jesus didn't preach, you know, here's the the minimum that you have to do to get by. Jesus always preached maximum. So he said, listen, don't just go one mile, but go with him two miles. Jesus was teaching us a principle in the kingdom of God that going the first mile is what is expected of us. It's what's required of us. But when we step into that second mile zone, that's the place where real divine opportunities and supernatural blessings begin to flow in our life. When we will go the and then some, the second mile, put a little extra. In Louisiana, we call it lanyard. Put a little extra to it. It's the and then some attitude. And you know, the truth is we look at successful people and we somehow want to excuse their success. Well, it was the family they were born into. It was the school that they went to. It was, it was this or it was that. But the truth is, most of the time, successful people, they're not overnight sensations. They have been working hard for a long time. And they have entered into that second mile zone where they do what's required and then some. And that's what Rebecca had. She had this attitude. I'm going to do what's, what's required but I'm going to put some and then some to it. There's a great verse in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes. Let me read it to you. Chapter 9, verse 10, that says this, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Not some, not a little bit. Do it with all your might. And don't you find, you know, oftentimes that people are trying to live their life and do just the minimum that's required? Let's just do the minimum to stay married. Let's do the minimum that we have to do to, you know, to get the job done. And so often, if you're an employer, you probably could relate to this. So often people, you know, do what's minimally required. If they're supposed to be at work at 9, man, they're sliding in at 8.59. 
you know, if, 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 if the day ends at 5 o'clock, man, they're 4.50. From 4.50 on, they're watching the clock, waiting for 5 o'clock, and they're in their car, and they're gone. And those are the same people that are in line when it's yearly review time or when it's promotion time or a raise time. They're the ones that are standing out, you know, with their, with their hands open. Like, come on, I deserve this. But, you know, the truth is promotion raises bonuses come on i'm teaching you how to get a promotion at work right now those things come to people that do the and then some that do what is required and then some and opportunities the things that you're praying for we're all praying for new opportunities we're praying for open doors we're praying for god to move in our life we're praying for new customers and clients and all those things that we're believing new relationships we're praying and believing for all those things let me tell you those opportunities will come when we step into the second mile, opportunities flow into our life when we have the and then some attitude. Here's the second thing. We're talking about three things that flow into our life when we serve with passion. Three things that Rebecca had. Three things that you and I can have. First of all is opportunities. They flow, you know, when you have a second mile attitude. Second is significance. Significance is something all of us are praying for. We're believing that we'll be used by God, that we can do something great for God. And significance, I believe, flows into our life when we have a true commitment to insignificant things. Significance flows into our life when we have that true commitment to the ordinary, the mundane, the things that seem insignificant. Let's look at Rebecca's life. How many of you would agree? Nothing very significant about drawing water for your family not very significant and there's especially you know not much significance to drawing water for camels have you ever been around a camel they stink or like we say in tennessee they stank try it you may have never said it that way it'll set you free stank stank they're nasty they will spit on you they smell they kick so listen there's not much significance about watering someone's camels here's a stranger that asked for a drink of water okay politely the the right thing to do is offer to give him something to drink but go the extra mile and offer to water his camels and so so i did a little camel watering calculation are you ready 10 camels okay this guy had 10 camels now the average camel after traveling a day's journey will be thirsty enough to drink 20 gallons of water so 10 camels times 20 gallons equals 200 gallons. You're, 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 you're right. You got it. 200 gallons. Now, the average jar in Bible days, you know, it doesn't say it in the story, but you can do a little research and, you know, get close. So her jar was probably about five gallons, maybe four, maybe six. You know, there's no exactness to this, but, but let's just say five gallons. So, so 200 gallons divided by five would be 40 so that's 40 trips down to the well and back up to the trough and down to the well and back up to the trough and down to the well. And, and listen, all the while just smelling and thinking about those old nasty, stanky camels. And what an interruption to your normal day. This guy shows up and here I am watering his camels and you can think about those ordinary things those distractions those diversions the ordinary 
day to day, the mundane. I think about, you know, some of the young, I watched, our, you know, my wife and, you know, as a, as, a, as a mother of some young children, our children are a little older now, but I watched some of these moms, you know, that have these, you know, two-year-olds and three-year-olds and I got a couple of them. And, and I mean, just like every day, just the hard work that goes into, you know, raising little ones. And, you know, you know, it's going to be, they're not going to, I mean, it's, when they're 20, maybe 30, before they could ever really appreciate what you did and the sacrifice that you made. Those ordinary, everyday, mundane tasks. But listen, God breathes on the ordinary. And there is no extraordinary without ordinary. There is no supernatural without natural. You provide the natural. You provide the ordinary. You're there in the mundane. And guess what? God breathes on the ordinary and brings it to extraordinary. Or God takes what seems to be the insignificant and God brings it to a place of significance. And that's exactly what happened with Rebecca. It's exactly what happened with Rebecca. Let me give you a little analogy. Abraham represents God. The servant represents the Holy Spirit that goes from God with all kinds of good things. But those camels, those camels represent opportunities for you and I to be ushered into God's great plan for our lives. Because if you read the end of the story, what you realize is when Rebecca first laid her eyes on Isaac, she was riding. Guess what? Those old stanky camels that she had watered. So those camels ushered her into the plan that God had for her life. See, I tell people all the time, especially young people, you don't need to go chasing your destiny. Go running after your future. If you are committed to do the insignificant, ordinary things, your future will come and find you and bring you forward. Here's the third thing. Favor flows out of faithfulness. Opportunity Where does it come? It comes in that second mile zone. Significance? Where is significance birth? It's birth in the midst of insignificant moments. And then favor, something we believe for, something we hope for, something we want in our life. Come on, is anybody believing for favor? We want favor. We're hoping for favor. But let me tell you where favor comes. You can pray for it. You can bind and loose and call it down from heaven and do all those sorts of things. But let me tell you where true favor comes. It comes when you are faithful. It comes when you're faithful. And what a picture of faithfulness, Rebecca, doing what she was supposed to be doing. And I looked at the story and I thought, what if she had called in sick? What if she had said, Ma, I ain't going today. Let Shanene go. It's her turn. (laughs) Been doing it every day. What if she had not showed up? She would have missed out. She would never have met the stranger. She would have never had a nose ring and two gold bracelets. You know, she didn't know those things were inside of that man's bag. She didn't do it for that. She was faithful. And you know, I've heard a lot of messages on faithfulness. But I love this this one definition. Faithfulness is being where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's just simply being where you're supposed to be doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I want to close with this great passage in, in the book of Proverbs. Book of Proverbs, I love this passage, Proverbs 28, 
And it's a great principle about faithfulness and favor. It says this, Proverbs 28, verse 19, He who works his land will have abundant food. Does everybody see that? He who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. A faithful man will be richly blessed. See, I believe this, and I think this is a principle in the kingdom of God. I believe all of us have a land. Your land, my land. It's, it's your family. It's your marriage. It's your kids. It's your job. It's your church. And the Bible says that if we work our land, we'll be richly blessed. And I literally believe that by being faithful in your marriage with your kids, you're not going to be a perfect dad. You're not going to be a perfect mom. There is no such thing as a perfect family. There's no such thing as a perfect job or a perfect church. But if you just keep showing up where you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to be doing, and if you stay faithful, I believe there's enough prosperity and potential buried in your land to provide you with everything that you need. But instead, what do we do? We look up over the fence and we look at someone else's land. We look at someone else's family, someone else's marriage, someone else's job, another church. And we think somehow that's the answer. The Bible calls it chasing fantasies. And how many of us know marriages that have been destroyed because someone chased a fantasy? Because someone started comparing? Because instead of developing their own land and the potential that was buried in their own land, they started chasing fantasies. And what does it say? He who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. But a faithful man will be richly blessed. See, faithfulness is the force that draws the potential out of your land. Faithfulness, it's that quiet, steady force that will draw potential out of your relationships, potential out of your job, potential out of your church. So let's be faithful because true favor, true favor flows out of faithfulness. So come on, help me, help me do a little recap. What are we believing for? We're believing for opportunities, aren't we? We're believing, come on, this year, that this will be a year of opportunity for us. Well, listen, opportunities flow out of a second-mile attitude. We're believing, we're believing for significance, that God would use us to do great things, that we would be used by Him. Significance comes when we're committed to insignificant moments, insignificant things. And favor, favor, true favor flows out of faithfulness. Come on, let's be committed to serving and not just serving, but serving with passion. To be passionate people who serve, who give it their all. Come on, do you receive that today? Can we give God a, a good hand clap for His Word and thank God for His Word? Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this weekend. Can I just pray for you? Believe God for you today. Father, I thank you for this great church. Thank you for Seacoast Church, for Greg, Debbie Surratt, the whole Surratt family. Thank you for the blessings that are on this church and the momentum, the influence. I thank you, Father God, for blessing Pastor Greg and the team. I pray for this church and I pray for every person here, Lord, that you would move mightily in their life. Father, we thank you for passion. Help us to be passionate people, full of passion. Lord, to, to love with passion, 
to give passionately, to worship passionately, and to serve, to lay our life down for others. Because in doing so, that's the secret to our life moving forward. I thank you for doing great things in our lives. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.